Welcome to the Secretary Survey, the Irish Pre-Hospital Podcast. Hi, I'm Stephen O'Flaherty. I'm John Mooney. And I'm Viv Ford. Welcome to this episode of the Secondary Survey. This month it's all about the new Pre-Hospital Emergency Care Council's Clinical Practice Guidelines 2021, which were released recently. The last CPGs were released in 2017 and were tweaked in March 2018. These new CPGs have been completely overhauled and with a lot of new changes in our treatments and medications that we administer to our patients. These changes have been the biggest changes in a long time to our CPGs, with a lot of gutsy decisions made by the Medical Advisory Committee, and they really should be applauded for making these decisions. They will improve care of the patient and their experience in the pre-hospital environment. The biggest change to these CPGs is the introduction of procedural sedation and a more in-depth pathway for the non-conveyance of patients. There are two new medications added for us, dexamethasone and activated charcoal. And there have been changes made to the dosing of ketamine for analgesia, along with other medication dosage changes, in particular for the paediatric patient. I will talk us through procedural sedation. Steve will speak about a few changes to the CPGs in general and give a brief overview on obstetrics and gynaecology. And Joe will go through the paediatric changes. So I'll kick things off with the procedural sedation CPG. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the new CPGs regarding procedural sedation for both adult and paediatric patients. In my opinion, this is probably the biggest addition to our CPGs for us in the pre-hospital field. This intervention is also thankfully now incorporated into the tachycardia CPGs for instances where our conscious unstable patient may need mechanical cardioversion. Both the adult and paediatric procedural sedation analgesia CPGs are pretty much the same except for the medication dosages. The CPG begins with the agitated patient that will need ongoing clinical care whilst with us and for the journey to ED. Now for the CPG we have to have a minimum of monitoring and equipment available to us if possible. These include your ECG and defibrillator, BP monitoring, ETCO2 monitoring, SpO2, BVM and oxygen masks, basic and advanced airways. Now from looking at the CPG, ideally two practitioners should be attending. But if not, a call for medical support, I'd imagine that would be medical cork for us here in Ireland, must be made and the situation discussed and whether to proceed with the sedation on your own would be advised or not. The same would apply if you have not been privileged to sedate a patient without contacting medical support beforehand. So let me go through the medications we have available to us in order to carry out procedural sedation. For adults and paediatrics, the medications are morphine, midazolam, fentanyl and ketamine. And I'll go a little bit more in depth with these later. In the CPG, there are three patient options. Then there are the most suitable medications for each of the patient options. Now, I won't bore you with the dosing of the medications as it would be easier to look at them. And frankly, I'd probably get bored myself if I had to read them off. So option one would be most suitable for patients that would have longer journeys and patients that would have normal to high blood pressure. So the options here would be morphine and if you needed it, midazolam. Option two then is for patients with shorter journeys or post-ROSC with normal to low blood pressure. The options of the medications here are fentanyl and again if you needed it you can top them up with a bit of midazolam. Option three, this would probably be more suitable for patients being transported by aeromedical or specialist services and these medications then are ketamine and once again midazolam should you need it. 
Now, for those of you that have looked at the CPG, you're probably thinking that these doses are not a lot different to the doses that we give for pain relief already. Well, bar the ketamine dose anyway. So let's put it into context with regards to the trauma patient, particularly those with a possible head injury. They usually present as being agitated and difficult for us to deal with and assess pre-hospitally. This is more likely due to the patient being in pain. From experience, I have had to ring Medico a few times for advice on how to deal with these types of patients and have been authorised to give morphine for the combative patient. On these occasions, even just a single dose of 2 milligrams of morphine IV relaxed and calmed the patient because we dealt with their pain. So let's have a look at the pharmacology of these medications and maybe then choosing the most appropriate medication might be a bit easier for your patient presentations. So let's start with morphine. This has more of an analgesic role than that of sedation. Its onset is 1 to 2 minutes and it reaches its peak effect at 10 to 15 minutes and it generally lasts 2 to 4 hours. Midazolam. So here we have to remember midazolam has no analgesic properties. We're using it for sedation, amnesia and anxiolysis. It has an onset time of 1 to 2 minutes with peak effect around 3 to 4 minutes and has a duration of 30 minutes. It's worth keeping in mind that it can cause CVS and respiratory depression and can, albeit rarely, lead to hypotension. Now onto fentanyl. This has both sedation and analgesia properties. It has an onset time of 1 to 2 minutes and achieves its peak effect at 3 to 5 minutes. Fentanyl has a duration of about 20 to 30 minutes. So with fentanyl we have a rapid onset and short duration with this medication which can make it ideal for some of our cardiac patients such as the tachycardia patient that needs mechanical cardioversion. And finally we have ketamine. So ketamine seems to provide everything we need for procedural sedation and analgesia. It provides sedation, amnesia and pain relief and it actually makes me wonder if it is actually the WD-40 of medications. It has an onset time of 30 seconds to 1 minute with peak effectiveness at 1 to 2 minutes. Its duration time is approximately 30 minutes. It can cause nystagmus which means that the sedative level has been achieved if you do see this. You can get a sympathetic response so the heart rate and blood pressure may increase and it provides respiratory preservation. It can cause laryngospasm but this is very rare. There can also be emergence phenomenon, which is when the patient may experience distress and agitation as they are coming out of their sedation. So as to what medications to give, you need to tailor your choice to the patient condition and how long you want that sedation to last. With regards to using an opioid and benzodiazepine combination, I'd imagine it's best to administer the opioid first. By doing this, it allows time for the opioid to become maximally effective before the any sedative is added and maybe it might not even be required. And that's something that I like about the CPG is that they say if required for midazolam. It might also be worth keeping in mind to perhaps give smaller initial doses for sedation in our elderly patients. Also the CPG, there is a sedation assessment tool, the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale. This tool is a scale or a score that ranges from plus four through zero to minus five. And this assesses how agitated or how deeply sedated your patient actually is. Obviously, the plus side of the scale indicates the level of agitation, zero being calm and normal, and the negative side is the level of sedation that your patient is at. Like I said earlier, the adult and paediatric CPGs are the same, except in the paediatric CPG, the dosages of the medication are weight-based and the repeat doses are different. It is interesting to have intramuscular ketamine added for us as a route used for procedural sedation. During an online procedural sedation course I attended this summer, I did learn that the IM route for ketamine in paediatric sedation has an incident rate of 5 to 10% 
of causing vomiting as the patient recovers and the patient will have a longer recovery time. So personally, I would be pretty cautious in going with that route for the pediatric patient. As far as I know, Arkem are stepping away from IM ketamine in peds for sedation. What I do think what we need to be very conscious about in pediatric sedation is keeping the parents or carers involved in explaining what we are doing, why we are doing it, and first and foremost, getting their consent to do this to the child. I'd just like to finish up on, as with all our patients, documentation for this procedure is just as important as the procedure itself. You need to document your rationale for performing sedation, the patient condition before, during and after the sedation, as well as documenting consent for the sedation. I think this applies to both adult and paediatric patients. There are good reference sources for procedural sedation available from the Orchem website and links for these will be put on the show notes. So that's me done on procedural sedation. Hopefully I haven't sedated those listening by droning on. Thanks a million Viv, for that overview on sedation. Can I just ask a quick question? Do you see this being rolled out to all advanced paramedics in all services or do you think it will be a select few or will there be criteria that has to be met for the implementation of that CPG for the practitioners on the road? Well, Joe, from what I've heard is that this will be open to all advanced paramedics who are five years post-graduation and that they will have to sit and obviously pass an exam in order to obtain the privilege to perform procedural sedation, which I think is a good thing because it's a pretty big thing that you're doing to somebody is consciously reducing their GCS. So I suppose we won't know for sure until the upskilling for the new CPGs is rolled out how exactly they're going to do it or if what I said will change. Also, I think we should be super cautious about procedural sedation of our paediatric patients. Even in some hospitals which follow ARCAN recommendations, they have very strict procedures about who carries out procedural sedation on a child. They want three dedicated staff to do it, minimum being a doctor, a clinician, and a nurse must be present also. So I think for us out on the, the streets, should we say, or in the background ambulance, Sedating a child is a very, very big undertaking and you'd want to be pretty confident in your practitioners to do that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Absolutely. To sedate a child is it is a big step forward. There obviously is there are some cases that it will need to be done. But again, very experienced colleagues and especially if they go through training and they, they pass the exam, that the support is there for them. And I think overall the procedural sedation step forward is fantastic and it is needed. And I think as a safety net for all staff, I think if it is five years post registration and an exam passed, it is safety netting for all the staff as well. So I, I think it's a, it's a fantastic step forward. Absolutely. Yeah, it really is. And I'm really glad they have procedural sedation in, in the tachycardia CPG now because I don't think anybody really wants to shock somebody who is conscious or semi-conscious because they will feel that bang pretty hard. Just want to talk a little bit about the tachycardia CPGs. I think the new CPG for these is a lot better. The 2014 CPGs, my God, you'd need an Enigma decoder to make sense of the first tachycardia CPGs that we had. The 27 (laughs) CPGs were an improvement. They were easier to follow. But I think the new CPGs we have now is is four CPGs. The first one is kind of an overview that will direct you to the appropriate tachycardia CPG. So it's broken down into three further CPGs. You have tachy with a narrow QRS and a regular rate. Tachy with a wide QRS and a regular rate, and tachycardia with an irregular rate. So it breaks down the treatments for those a lot easier where you're not getting sidetracked by all the other little arms that come off CPGs. So I think that's a super addition to the CPGs this year. 
Absolutely, 100%. It's probably one of my favourite additions to all CPGs. It's brilliant. It was a minefield the last two editions of that tachycardia CPG. There was just lines everywhere. So in fairness to the Medical Advisory Committee and the person who designed them, like, it's exceptional. It really is. And the way I think of it is, if they're conscious, they get medication. If they're unresponsive, they get electricity. Right, Joe, I believe you're going to take us through some of the changes in the paediatric CPGs now. I have the very interesting item of the paediatric CPGs. So there's been a few big changes to these CPGs, but also an increase in child safety awareness. So let's start at the beginning, the paediatric assessments. Both patient assessment primary survey medical and trauma and secondary survey CPGs have now added a mandatory box and it states, report findings as per Children's First Act 2015 to ED staff and Tusla in a confidential manner. And I feel that this shows an increase in the support from FEC and the Medical Advisory Committee for the pre-hospital care providers and the paediatric patients we may encounter that might need input and support from TUSLA. So let's get on to the main CPGs. For Strider, the main change for all levels from EMT to AP is the introduction of oral or IM dexamethasone, 300 mics per kilogram. This is a great step forward. And for us really, where we would be treating a strider would be in the croup scenario where we're called to a breeding difficulty of a young child. And when we arrive, we hear the seal-like bark and a generally unwell child. And dexamethasone has been used in emergency departments for paediatric croup for years now. And it's great that it's now a pre-hospital medication. The Addison's disease CPG has now a fantastic box with the clinical presentations of Addison's. Also on a side note, it's great to see that the systolic blood pressure box in the adult Addison's disease has been removed because you can have an Addison's disease patient who has all the clinical signs of an Addisonian crisis but mightn't be hypertensive but will still need hydrocortisone. So it's really good to see that that box is gone. For the diabetic emergencies, now being able to take ketone readings is a huge benefit for us to rule in or rule out diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA. Also the big change is that glucagon has now gone to an age range and a weight based instead of just an age based. So what do I mean? So a one month old child who's weighing less than 25 kg is getting 500 mics of glucagon. And if they're one month old and over, and over 25 kg is one milligram. And this is a big step away from the one month to eight years old getting 500 mics and over eight getting one milligram. So again, it's something new for us all. From a pain management point of view, the paracetamol dose is being brought in line with the hospital dose of 15 milligrams per kilogram and not our usual 20 milligrams that we have been given for years. So again, more working with our in-hospital colleagues. Also, the medication doses that are less than one milligram throughout the CPGs are now in micrograms. So it's not 0.5 milligrams of a medication, it's 500 mics. It's the same dose, but it's now standard dosing throughout the CPGs. In this shock by blood loss CPG, there is fantastic to see TXA being added for the paediatric CPGs. We know about the CRASH-2 trial in adults, the CRASH-3 trial in adults, and the woman's trial for the postpartal hemorrhage. The CRASH-2 trial shown that TXA in traumatic injuries was a benefit to adult patients. The CRASH-3 trial for traumatic brain injuries was beneficial for adults. And the woman's trial for postpartal hemorrhage was, again, a massive benefit. But very little, if any, trials have been carried out for TXA in paediatric trauma. But the signs now show it's safe, effective, and I strongly believe that TXA is a pre-hospital medication. And it is brilliant to see it being added to the paediatric shock by blood loss CPG. So I think it's fair to say I'm a bit of a fan of TXA. So overall, I think each member of the medical avoiding committee needs a huge amount of credit for all the hard work and the steps forward with the new treatments and medications for all levels. So I know, Joe, you're our resident paediatric expert. What kind of came, jumped out at you from the paediatric CPGs? 
Thanks, Stephen. A pediatric expert now. If I start getting called up from work now, I'm going to blame you. Uh, yeah, I think the big one was the dexamethasone into the croup CPG. And as I said in my bit of a spiel there, I think that's a big benefit. What I would have liked to see as well is a box back at the primary and secondary survey for the pediatrics. Because we're focusing so much now on the well-being of the child with giving the TUSLA report to the ED staff or to TUSLA directly in a confidential manner, I would have liked to have seen a memory box of signs and symptoms of non-accidental injuries. So things like, you know, nosebleeds under one, we know that 20% of them are caused by strangulation bruises or injuries to non-mobile children so children who are not crawling not walking they shouldn't have bumps or bruises human bite marks burns and skulls and i think that a box would have been just you know a nice kind of refresher to keep in the back of the head or the forefront of the minds actually for people if they're opening the cpgs and then also i see that we're still giving sabutamol nebs there is no lower age limit for it so i would like to see a, maybe a further conversation within the medical advisory committee that sabutamol is not given in hospitals to children under one and mainly because if they have a wheeze it's more than likely going to be bronchiolitis and for years we thought that the beta receptors in the lungs that the sabutamol work on that the children didn't have these receptors until they were around two years of age so there was research done a few years ago where they actually had pediatric cadavers and they actually found these beta receptors in the cadavers so it's not that they don't have them it's that the pathophysiology of the bronchiolitis is that it's a mucus buildup and an oedema of the bronchioles and not a bronchospasm caused by asthma so that's why the sabutamol doesn't work on the lungs but what it does do is because the children do have the alpha receptors in their heart it does make them tachycardic so you're in the back of the ambulance you have a sick wheezy eight month old you give them the first dose of sabutamol it doesn't work because it isn't going to work because it's probably bronchiolitis and then you see them getting tachycardic and you go oh they must be getting sicker so what do we do we give them a second neb so I think just a further discussion and further clarification around giving a neb to a child under one is probably worthwhile. Now, they're saying over two is where the asthma is diagnosed. I think it'd be hard to see an 18 or 19 month old child wheeze really badly in the back of the arms and not give him a neb. But I think under one, I just don't think you're going to go into any pediatric emergency department in Ireland and see a five or six month old on a 2.5 sabulamol neb. Also, great to see that paramedics are getting the neb, the adrenaline for Strider, or what we would use it for most of the time is croup. It's very effective. It's, it's a safe medication and it's, it's absolutely life-saving for a life-threatening croup. So yeah, I think it's a really good pediatric stuff. Also great to see that all the medications are coming in this round and the next round of CPGs in a few years are coming in under the Child Health Ireland, the CHI doses. So all of our doses that will be pre-hospital will be the first dose in hospital treatment. So they'll start further down in their protocols. So again, just more working with our in-hospital colleagues. Joe, I actually think the introduction of nebulized adrenaline for paramedics is brilliant. To be honest, I don't know why it wasn't included in the previous CPGs for them, because it is very, very effective on the child who has hard work of breathing, intercostal recession, strider, the barking cough. It's a scary thing to see. And the fact that paramedics will be able to do this now. Absolutely. Yeah, 100% agree. It's a big step forward and, it, and it's brilliant. You know, it's a first line treatment after the DEX. Sorry, so it's technically it's second line, isn't it? <laughs> so it's uh, after the DEX. And yeah, so and DEX has been used for generations in the hospitals. It's really good to see that the pre-hospital care of our paediatric patients are coming in line more and more each time with our in-hospital colleagues. 
I suppose just a good point to kind of highlight and remember, especially for croup patients or strider patients, is that keeping a child calm is really, really useful because I suppose the more worked up the child gets, the worse their strider or the worse their croup is going to potentially get. I know certainly to a point, I suppose it's all about appropriate treatment given the patient. If you can be a little bit more hands off with these kids, I think sometimes it helps just by keeping them calm. You'll actually absolutely do a huge amount to like make them better and sometimes if we get a bit too hands-on we nearly precipitate the problem i suppose it's it's all about that fine balance finding getting the truly sick croup child versus the croup child that is like sick because they're worked up if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah Absolutely. A regular croup child as hands off as possible. You're nearly looking at it like a treatment of an epiglottitis. Don't be messing around with them. Just bring them to the hospital and get them sorted. You know, where it is the really sick, hard working, breeding child where the nebs will work. It's frightening for the parents. It's frightening for the child. I suppose kind of having a look through the CPGs and some nice changes that some of the guys have kind of discussed already. Some things that have kind of come up with the paramedic CPGs, which I think are interesting. And I suppose it clarifies some of the potential confusion around some of the CPGs. But one of the best examples of that is the adrenal insufficiency CPG. They kind of made it much simpler, which I suppose is the ideal thing really with somebody who's got an adrenal insufficiency or uh, Addison's disease who goes into an Addisonian crisis. And like the real treatment for Addisonian crisis is hydrocortisone or steroid. Okay, so like normally if someone with Addison's disease would normally be on a low dose steroid uh, as a maintenance dose and whenever they get sick or ill, they double their dose. That's generally the way it kind of goes. If we're called somebody who's in Addisonian crisis, we really need to be heading for the hydrocortisone. And that's made kind of simply put out now in the CPG, which by taking out the less than 90 systolic trigger, I think has just made it a bit simpler for everybody just to kind of, I suppose, bring it back to the front of the mind that hydrocortisone is really what these patients need. And again, having the red and white box with some of the clinical presentations of, of an Addisonian crisis and how it's a, such a varying amount of symptoms. So it can really present with lots of stuff. And the main ones are kind of in the box there just to remind us to think about Addisonian crisis when we are presented with people with these symptoms, such as penetrating pain in the legs or lower back or the abdomen, severe vomiting, diarrhea, resulting in dehydration, hypertension um, when sitting or even lying, syncope, hypoglycemia, confusion, slurred speech, okay, fatigue, and even convulsions. They're all things that somebody who has Addison's disease or has an adrenal insufficiency that we're thinking straight away they might be in crisis if they're presenting with some of them and we need to get hydrocortisone into them, um, especially if they haven't taken their own hydrocortisone or doubled their dose, as would be the normal run-of-the-mill stuff. So what do you think, guys? Yeah, I think it's good CPG. It's a bit more clearer, I think. But I think the important thing with a patient with adrenal insufficiency or who has an Addisonian crisis is to get the history of the patient and take that history on board when you are speaking with either the patient or with the family member who might be looking after the patient. Sometimes you might have to give it even though somebody might not tick the boxes. But if you have somebody saying they didn't receive hydrocortisone within a certain time frame and they were in a coma for a month afterwards, then you should kind of use your clinical judgment, kind of go listen to the history and give the hydrocortisone and maybe prevent the patient from getting worse. Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's really good. Really good point. Thanks. Sir. A couple of other things, I suppose, have kind of jumped out at me. It's nice to see the ketone measurement in the hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia, the diabetic glycemic emergency CPG. That's probably coming down the line 
we're starting to carry the ketone or they're more available, I suppose. So hopefully that will be seen on ambulances soon enough and hopefully add to the picture a bit more for maybe guiding our treatment when it comes to glycemic emergencies. I suppose in the respiratory emergency side of things, it's really good to see CPAP. There's less hesitation to be using it when it comes to CPGs with regards in the COPD CPG as kind of a last ditch. You know, when you've tried everything else and you've still got someone in, in respiratory failure, having positive pressure really is what they need. So ideally, you know, we, we don't have BiPAP on the ambulances, but we do have CPAP and it's certainly a bridge to BiPAP for COPD patients if nothing else is working. And it's, it's nice to see the COPD contraindication has been removed from the contraindication box. And I suppose that potentially is on the back of a study done in West Midland Ambulance Service where they looked into the just using CPAP for respiratory emergencies and in general kind of respiratory failure. And they saw that while it didn't greatly improve the outcome, there wasn't a huge amount of adverse effects. Uh, it's probably safer than, I suppose, what we initially thought might have been more risky to use CPAP when it came to the likes of COPD, where you might want less expiratory pressure. So you're not kind of retaining as much intercostal pressure when you're providing that positive pressure. But it's a great addition to see. So hopefully that will improve some COPD patients, certainly in the extreme stage of COPD emergencies that we might see in the ambulance. I actually agree with you there, Steve. I know of a few APs who rang for medical oversight on their COPD patient that wasn't improving and they got the go-ahead to use CPAP. So I think it's great that they don't have to make that phone call anymore and save time and just go ahead and treat the patient with CPAP and just get them into the emergency department where they can then go on BiPAP if they need it. Yeah, the CPAP, it's simply a, a marvellous intervention that we can do. I'm a big fan of it. And to see it now for COPD patients, it's an, a massive step forward and, and rightly so. A brilliant intervention that we can do. I'm just going to go back to your ketones point there, Stephen. Yeah, absolutely great to see it. And also it's going to be available for all three levels of practitioners. So from EMT up. So again, our EMT colleagues as well has another diagnostic tool in their toolbox for our patients. Yeah, definitely. And as just speaking about some of the stuff that I suppose filtered down to the EMT level, another nice thing, I suppose, just that I kind of noted there was the introduction of tourniquets for the EMT level, which I think is it's a sensible enough decision for the risk versus reward. And somebody with catastrophic hemorrhage, when you do need it, having the ability for people at EMT level to apply a, a tourniquet, I think is a sensible decision given the benefit that they'll potentially bring to the patient. So I think that's a really good thing to, to see as well. You get no argument from me there, Steve. Huh? Oh. You get no arguments from me there. <laughs> yeah, no arguments here, Stephen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, no. Great. It's a, it, again, great step forward. Absolutely. And a life-saving skill. Absolutely. So, Steve, I think you want to go over a little bit about the pain relief CPG and some of the changes that have come about on the CPG itself. So there's a couple of changes to the latest pain relief CPG, which is going to add some nice kind of repertoire to our toolbox and certainly sharpen some of the tools we have, which would be nice. From my own experience, pain is probably over 50% of the calls we go to are, are pain related, people in pain or whatever. So having a nice suite of medications to control pain and different types of pain is really nice. You know, and some of the things that are kind of 
bringing that into the forefront is you know the the option to do fentanyl iv and morphine iv potentially if, if it's appropriate now obviously polyopiate administration comes with its risks and it's probably better to stick with one opiate over the other but i suppose sometimes when you're potentially in a, a situation where you have to give strong pain relief for extrication or something like that and you maybe have a long journey into hospital that sometimes fentanyl might be appropriate in the initial stages and morphine might be needed then further on the journey when when the when the fentanyl maybe wears off or something like that and you know the, the increased uh, range of dose for ketamine i think would be nice to just to make that maybe a little bit more user-friendly and maybe a bit more effective because i think most advanced paramedics will probably have rang for medical support to maybe up the ketamine when required you know so they're all nice little tweaks to a fairly comprehensive cpg and i know you Viv, you have a bit of experience with conscious io and you know it's nice to see the lidocaine added in there you know into the into the cpg to kind of make it more robust there for that as well Definitely, for sure. The conscious I.O., you're always breaking it when you're doing it. And what I have found is that there's no pain initially when you puncture the skin with the needle and drill into the bone. But I found that patients, the only time that they complain of pain is when you aspirate it first to see if you're in the bone and then push the flush through. And that's the time that they'll feel the pain when you set up your medication in the infusion. They don't seem to be complaining of pain then, but it's the initial aspiration and flush is what causes the patient the most discomfort. And I was breaking it each time I've done the conscious IO, which is conscious of causing pain to somebody when you're doing something to treat them and to make them feel better. Yeah, and for everybody who's outside of Ireland, bricking it means nervous. (laughs) (laughs) It's a nice term. (laughs) Thanks for the translation there, Steve. No worries. One of the other CPGs that I kind of came across there, which I think is it's really added to the thinking process behind how we treat these patients is the submersion immersion incident CPG. So one of the really nice parts of it now is that it's triggering a bit of thought process into one of the reversible causes. So I suppose somebody who isn't breathing after they're being pulled out of the water is potentially in cardiac arrest secondary to hypoxia or most likely in cardiac arrest secondary hypoxia. So it's really nice to see that the CPG is going towards the correcting hypoxia where so it goes to are they responsive? No. Are they breathing spontaneously? No. And then it's open airway and five rescue breaths. So it's nice to see that there's a bit of a focus on reversing the reversible cause of hypoxia and continuing ventilations. And then it kind of goes into the whole CPR thing. And it's really nice as well just to, to see a focus on airway management further down into the CPG, kind of looking at cuffed airway devices. So we're, you know, when it comes to droning that we've got, you're potentially going to need higher airway pressures to maybe get ventilations into lungs and something that's been kind of added in there as a non-core skill is the consideration of a nasogastric tube maybe to decompress the stomach and so i think that's really nice it's really kind of added a lot to that cpg which i think it will help patients in the long run so that's that really nice to see so steve is now going to go through some of the things we need to know about activated charcoal in addition to one of the CPGs that we have already is the poisoning CPG is activated charcoal. So activated charcoal is basically charcoal that everybody uses in barbecues or a medical grade version of that being heated in the presence of gas. And what that does is it changes the surface area of the charcoal and creates all these tiny pores. Those tiny pores then are used to absorb chemicals within the gut. And that's, that's the point of activated charcoal is ingest the activated charcoal that it'll mop up like a sponge any chemicals that are in the gut before they get absorbed into the the body. 
So it's indicated for us, for anybody with GCS15 who's uh, ingested a solid substance, so tablets and the likes of that. And I suppose the important thing to remember is what doesn't work on, and it doesn't work on cyanide, ethanol, ethanol glycol, iron, lithium, methanol, petroleum distillates, and strong acids and alkalis. And there's a list in the medical formulary, and there will be a list in the field guide as to what the indications are for activated charcoal. One thing that I, I suppose the difference between maybe Toxbase and the CPGs, Toxbase sort of recommend within an hour of ingestion that activated charcoal is most useful for, whereas there's no time mentioned in the CPGs. I'm not sure whether that will change with the field guide or not. And that comes from evidence that they've seen in studies of sub-toxic doses for obvious reasons, volunteer studies, that the elimination after one hour had no clinical significance and certainly the effect decreased over time but there isn't much evidence to demonstrate whether there's evidence for benefit after an hour with toxic doses so i suppose maybe that's why there isn't a time limit in the cpgs and also for those sustained release tablets after one hour could be indicated some of the things just to watch out for side effects constipation and a new word from the cpgs as every uh, iteration of cpgs is a couple of new words you have to go looking up bezoar which is uh, just a solid kind of stone like substance in the stomach uh, or in the bowels can be caused by activated charcoal and just an interesting side fact out of that uh, any harry potter fans may remember the bezoars that are used as antidotes against the basilisk venom from the snakes that's a little um, nice useless fact for you. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes, whether it'll be implemented and whether there'll be a use for it. So just watch the space, but it's nice to have it included for those instances where it might be of use. And finally, we're going to go through very briefly the obstetrics and gynecology CPGs. Steve is going to give a very brief overview on these and what we've discovered when we were looking at them is that they probably do deserve their own separate podcast. So we do plan on doing that in the future. So Steve, give us the brief overview, pal. So the new effect CPGs covering maternity are really comprehensive overview of some of the maternity related emergencies, including childbirth, neonatal resuscitation, and some of the complications involved in maternity care. In my own view, a real improvement on the 2017 CPGs, bringing the whole maternity care more in line with treatment received in hospitals, just some of the main things that we consider the changes. So oxytocin now is a regular medication to be given in childbirth, which brings it in line with the HC policy on the active management third stage of labour. There's some nice clear guidance in the childbirth CPG advising when we should be aiming to have childbirth in hospital as opposed to in the ambulance and having a little aid memoir of risk factors for complicated deliveries. There's a couple of new CPGs also involved with some general pregnancy-related emergencies such as preeclampsia or eclamptic seizures, PV bleeding, vomiting in pregnancy. And also there's a couple of CPGs that have slightly changed. So the breech birth CPG now talks is more of a malpresentation CPG involving breech birth and face brow presentation. And also there's a separate CPG now on the shoulder dystocia, giving a comprehensive guide to what to do in shoulder dystocia. On the whole, I do think that the CPGs are a great addition to our suite of CPGs. And I look forward to the upskilling. Just looking through all the different changes and things that, I think we're going to probably have to spend 
a good number of hours going over maternity related emergency CPGs and certainly looking into the different contexts behind the changes. Another interesting change is that neonatal resuscitation now is up to six weeks of age, uh, so less than equal to six weeks for neonatal resus. I think in general, the whole maternity CPGs, there's quite a lot in it. So I think we're probably going to review that in an episode on its own just to give it some the time that it deserves. Hopefully we'll have some expert opinion as well just to share some of the context behind some of the changes. And I'm sure I, I'm not alone here when I say that maternity calls are the cause probably that worry us a lot because we are certainly not experts at it. We don't see a lot of it. And we certainly don't see a lot of complicated births, thankfully, because we have a very good maternity service in Ireland and majority of complicated births are picked up early and are managed in hospital. But nonetheless, sometimes these things happen in pre-hospital arena and we have to deal with it. So being prepared is certainly part of our role as paramedics and pre-hospital practitioners. So thanks very much for uh, listening and thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. We've been delighted to talk about the new CPGs and we're really excited to see them implemented over the next little while. And we look forward to uh, maybe delving into some of the CPGs in a bit more depth as the year goes on. So thanks again for joining us and follow us on Twitter and you can get us in all the normal podcasting places. Okay, thanks very much and see you next month. Bye. Take care. Stay safe. All information recorded is solely the opinion of the presenters and their guests. They do not represent the views of the employers nor associated with any establishment or service provider. Content is not to be taken as medical advice and should not affect established guidelines and protocols. Thank you for listening. Take care.